morning, everyone. Give me a moment to get the technology going here. So we're winding down our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've been calling the King's Speech. Our King, of course, being the Lord Jesus, and this sermon being his address to his first disciples and also his address to us about the way that we are to conduct ourselves as we as we seek to carve out something of our own Christian community within the world that we live in and to be different than our surrounding culture. And we're almost finished. We only have a couple more sermons in this series and uh, Jesus is really hammering it home in this passage as we're going to see that there are two different ways to live. There's the way of his kingdom and there's the way of the kingdom of the world. He's going to keep hammering that home chapter 7. But today he's going to talk, amongst some other things, about the need for bearing good fruit. So Dechelle and I just recently got back from our vacation. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we were in Banff National Park, and I'm sure even if you haven't been to experience Banff, you have seen the pictures. Uh, one of the most famous pictures and one of the things that gets on all the used to be postcards they're kind of becoming a thing of the past but it's all over the internet and social media and all the ads and travel publications is Moraine Lake uh, it's, it's right that our, our nation a hundred years ago or more set aside this part of the world as a special and protected place but the problem with places that are so beautiful and that become so famous is that they tend to draw a lot of visitors right and that's been especially probably more so than any national park that's been Banff's problem is how do you keep up with the demand for all these visitors coming in? Do you just set a quota or do you try to keep expanding infrastructure just to accommodate the seemingly endless amount of people that want to come? Now, I don't know if, if how many of you use Instagram. I know our students are gone home for the summer, but there are still some, some people my age and younger here that Instagram is a thing. And uh, Moraine Lake has about 120,000 photos with the hashtag Moraine Lake. And it's it's generally these kind of photos, right? These beautiful photos, just a sense of peace and calm and people standing on the rock pile just looking at this beautiful, serene lake. It's just all nice and wildernessy. Look, just the, the com contemplative feeling of just being in nature. And so Jashal and I thought, we had seen Moraine Lake once, but it was in the fall and we're like, let's go here in early summer and see this place. It's June. We're not into July yet. Surely it won't be that busy. Let, especially, let's get up a little early. We'll try to get there before 8. And we should be able to beat the crowds, right? Wrong. Not, not even close. We got up to Moraine Lake. We got up early, drove from Banff up to the Lake Louise turnoff, and then took the Moraine Lake Road. We got there at about 7.45. And that's a big parking lot if you've ever been there. And it literally was completely full. There was not a parking space to be had. We had to drive through a second time before we were fortunate enough that somebody was pulling out and we were able to steal their spot. It, I bet I'm not exaggerating to say there were a thousand people up there swarming all over the parking lot and the rock pile viewpoint. Tour buses were pulling up and 40 or 50 people were just getting out and, and they got their selfie sticks going and all, all the stuff, right? And the weather was bad. It was about plus three, and there was an 80 kilometer an hour wind howling off that lake. It was nothing like the photos you see, but it was popular. 
We also visited this, this lovely waterfall that you can see here. It's called Twin Falls. It's just over in, uh, across the border into BC in Yoho National Park. There's, there's, as far as I could tell, no unique hashtag devoted to this waterfall on Instagram. Uh, there are some pictures of it. When we were looking at this waterfall, there was maybe, I think, another couple that was there. And we did meet a few other people on the trail but there was hardly anybody up there. So what's going on? Well, it's pretty simple. There's a paved highway that gets you right up to Moraine Lake. The tour buses will take you right to the end of the parking lot where it's only maybe a five minute walk up to the viewpoint on top of the rock pile. And the rock and the, the trail is really nice. It's got like nice stairs. Almost anybody in decent physical shape and health can walk up and see the view at Moraine Lake. It's way is easy. And so lots of people go to see Moraine Lake. Twin Falls, on the other hand, you can only get to about eight kilometers distance from it. And then you have to walk eight kilometers, the last two of which are a steep uphill climb to get to see this waterfall. The way is hard. And so only a few people go and do it. Jesus talks about something similar today when he contrasts the way of the Christian with the way of the world. And he presents a number of pretty stark contrasts, as I've already alluded to, right? The narrow gate and the wide gate, the easy road and the hard road. True teachers are true prophets, and false teachers are false prophets. Good fruit and bad fruit. And he contrasts those that talk about following Jesus and talk about knowing him with those that are actually known by the Lord. So as is our custom, I'd invite you to stand and we'll read our sermon text for today. Matthew chapter 7, again at verse 13, Matthew 7, verse 13, so we have a new living translation up there, but I'm reading from the ESV, so you can follow along in whatever translation you have. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, the to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thorn bushes? No, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Now, I think it's wise before we dive into a passage that has a lot to do with false teachers and false prophets to step back and take a deep breath. Last week, we looked at the need to be very careful about passing judgment and 
condemnation on others and being circumspect in doing so and considering our own selves and our own motives. And we need to keep that ringing in our ears as we approach this passage that deals with false teachers or false prophets. The fact that there are such people out there in the world is not an excuse to go around slandering fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians who may believe differently than we do on some small and disputable matters. Matthew 12, verse 30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. But Luke 9, 50, uh, the context there is uh, somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name who is outside of the disciple group. And Jesus tells his disciples, Don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus, as, as, as a Jewish wisdom teacher that he was, sometimes teach in these ways where he would say things that kind of sound like the opposite, right? The, the, the one who is not with me is against me, but then also saying the one who is not against me is with me. We need to remember both of these. There's a time and a place to apply each one. Be cautious of accusing people of heresy or false teaching unless, it's, unless it is clear and obvious. In other words, not when people just use different words than you do for basically the same theological idea. And don't accuse them of being heretics just because they're smarter or more famous than you are, and not because they said something that might lead to something that might lead to something that might lead to something that could be maybe taken the wrong way by someone. And in the spirit of those earlier verses in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, be careful about logs in your own eye, right? You, you probably have some things that you're not exactly 100% right on either. Beware of those before you go accusing others. This is particularly relevant in our own internet age where people can get online and just say whatever they want about whomever and they can say it in some pretty mean and pretty slanderous ways. It's given rise to something you might have heard of called discernment blogs. Now some of these are valid ministries that, that seek to maintain the purity and the orthodoxy of the Christian faith, but unfortunately some of them are slanderous publications that bear more resemblance to the National Enquirer than to a ministry of the gospel. I know that Briarcrest, and probably our own church at some point, has been in the sights of these type of internet websites in past years. Here's what one Christian writer said of his own experience with one such uh, website. Several weeks ago, I wrote something that brought about an explosive reaction. Suddenly, these bloggers were picking apart the meaning of my every word, taking stock of my deepest motives, and even writing with confidence about the state of my finances. Some of their commenters were crying out for people to hack my website and destroy it. A few were expressing themselves in profanity and threats of physical violence. It was intimidating, but also very clarifying. Because here's the reality. So much of what they wrote about me had so little basis in reality. These bloggers misinterpreted even what was obvious, stretched what is true, assumed what is dubious, and fabricated the rest. They shared all of this with their readers as if it was based on verifiable facts as if they were privy to details, as if it was anything more than conjecture. Once you start down the road of some of these websites, things can get really weird and really conspiracy theory-ish really quickly. A lot of these websites, as I said, maintain that they're contending for the purity and the orthodoxy of the Christian faith, but it seems more like they're sowing discord amongst Christians who should be partners in the gospel and in Christ's mission rather than, than being torn apart by false accusations and the stretching and bending of the truth. 
So as we unpack this passage, and as we do talk a bit about false teachers, make sure that in our desire to, to be careful in this regard and heed this warning, we're not throwing fellow brothers and sisters in the faith under the bus. And let's make sure we always hold ourselves and our conduct and our belief up for examination and even judgment before we turn to others. So the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many people find it. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and only a few people find it. We saw that with the vacation spots, right? The hordes of tourists flock to the places that are easy to get to and popular. The tour bus drops you right off, you don't even have to park far away. There's a special drop-off zone. You walk for a few minutes, take all your selfies, post it to Instagram, and away you go, get back on the bus, and you go see the next thing. But you have to be a bit of an explorer to find the places off the beaten path. You have to do some walking on gasp, unpaved trails where there may be no cell phone reception to post your selfies and maybe not even flush toilets. Jesus is talking about something similar here. He's calling for us to be explorers, not tourists. Why is the gate narrow? The gate is narrow because the gate is Jesus himself. Flip over to John's gospel. He says so in John chapter 10 and John chapter 14. The entrance into salvation and eternal life, the gate into those realities is Jesus. And it might not be fashionable to say so, and it might sound narrow-minded, and intolerant and we might even wish it could be otherwise for those people that we know who have made a confident and stubborn decision just to reject Jesus and reject the way of his kingdom but he's pretty clear on it the gate is narrow because it requires coming to Jesus in repentance and submission in order to find the forgiveness of our sins and the way is hard it's hard because it means living a life that's contrary what our surrounding culture thinks is important and what we most naturally want to do when left to ourselves. Right? Our own culture and our own human nature just seems to value comfort and pleasure above all else. If it feels good to do, it must be right. If it makes you happy, it must be right, so do it. If it feels uncomfortable and causes any measure of, of discomfort or pain, it must be wrong. It might even be oppressive if it requires you to change. That's precisely, though, what Jesus says we must do. We must hold holiness and righteousness as higher goods than comfort and pleasure. Hold the good of others as a higher good than our own. And accept the need to change those aspects of ourselves which aren't pleasing to God. Even put them to death. It means humbling ourselves and accepting that we are too broken to fix ourselves and not even smart enough to figure out how to go about doing that. None of that is easy. The alternative, as those rock stars, ACDC, so famously put it, is literally to take the highway to hell. Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. I certainly don't approve of ACDC and the lifestyle that they chose to live, and they were making light of the judgment of God, but probably speaking better than they knew, at least as describing what the road to hell is like. Except, of course, it won't be a joking and trivial matter should they reach their destination. So Jesus says we have a choice to make in the kind of path we're going to follow. 
doesn't all this stuff about exclusivity and about judgment that he's going to get into later on, doesn't this kind of just run counter to, to the love of God? Well, not necessarily. I think part of that is we've come to define the love of God based on kind of our culture's idea of love, which basically tends to mean inclusivity above all else, acceptance above all else. But real love also excludes as well, and you know this. If you have children, right, if you love them, you set boundaries for them. There are certain other kids that you may not want your kids playing with because they might lead them into activities that could be harmful. As those kids get older, there are certain people that you don't want them becoming romantically involved with because of the trouble that that might lead to, right? Out, out of love, we exclude certain things. Or in our marriage vows, usually there's something included in there about forsaking all others. Love can't just be inclusive of everything and anything. Love also draws lines and it protects and it defines. Of course, inherent in the path we follow is the choice of who is leading us on a given path. So who are you going to follow? Jesus says, be very careful here. What kind of leader you accept? Are you going to accept a leader who tells you the truth or just tells you what you want to hear? Are you going to choose a leader who gives you and tells you what you need or just gives you what you want? Are you going to follow one who makes much of himself or much of Jesus? Or one who makes much of you or who makes much of Jesus? This has been going on for a long time. Moses knew there would be false prophets. And so in the passage we, we had read earlier, he warned against them couple places actually in the book of Deuteronomy these false prophets Moses warned would come along and they would tell Israel that it, it's okay to go and worship some of these other gods of the pagan nations around gods whose worship consisted of sexual promiscuity but promised material wealth and blessing in return and and some of these false prophets if you were listening to that passage carefully some are obvious they might tell you things speaking in the name of one of these false gods, one of these pagan deities. Some, however, were harder to spot. And Moses warned, sometimes a false prophet might presume to speak in the name of the Lord and might use the Lord's name and say, this is what the Lord says. But what he was saying was not in line with God's revelation, revelation of his character and his intention and his plan for his people. And there was a need for discernment, even if someone presumes to speak in God's name might not be sent by God. You can also think of the prophet Jeremiah in a couple places in his book where he said these false prophets, they're going around, they're, they're healing the wound of my people, but superficially, and they're saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace because judgment and exile were looming. It's been a common theme throughout history. These sort of false people, these false teachers would instruct God's people. What God really wanted was for you to be happy wasn't really so concerned about righteousness and judgment and all that. And of course, it's not so hard to see that this is still going on today. There are false teachers out there who claim to be Christian pastors, but they teach a generic kind of a God. Just notice how little the actual name of Jesus Christ might be mentioned by some of these people who claim to be Christian pastors, Christian teachers, but they teach kind of just a generic God. Christ isn't mentioned basics of the Christian faith, you know, sin and salvation, repentance, the kingdom of God, righteousness, new creation, all those things get made 
very little of. Now, you might insist, well, isn't the opposite error also a problem? Legalism? Certainly. And it was the order of the day in, in Jesus' time. Pharisees and the teachers of the law could be great hypocrites and insist on all kinds of minute details, judgmental, sure. It's been a real problem at different points in church history as well. But remember what I said last week about Jesus' culture, at least his, his specific Jewish culture, being quite different than ours, and in some ways even opposite. His culture could be very strict and, and legalistic and get off on that track, whereas our culture can tend to be very permissive and very open, very tolerant, and value that above all else. It seems to me that we're far more likely to be taken in by false teachers peddling some kind of prosperity message as opposed to a legalistic one, at least in our culture. Though, of course, we should be wary of any false teaching. So what's the fruit by which we can recognize these false teachers? Jesus said, beware of them. They'll come to you. Wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They, they might look okay on the outside, but underneath, they're bad news. And you can recognize them by their fruit. So what is that? Well, the first time we read about fruit in Matthew's Gospel, it comes from the mouth of John the Baptist. If you remember the story, John was baptizing out at the River Jordan, and all kinds of people were coming to him to be baptized. Some of them were coming with sincere and good motives, and others were coming just because it was the thing to do, and they wanted to be seen to be doing this as well. And if you remember, John said, this, just doing this act isn't what it's all about. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, fruit is evidence of a life that's been changed by a transforming encounter with God. You might also consider the Sermon on the Mount here itself and the things Jesus taught, specifically the Beatitudes of what his followers should be characterized by. And of course, the Apostle Paul most famously illustrated the idea in Galatians 5 when he contrasts the, the acts of the flesh or the sinful nature spirit, right? He said, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, things like these on the one hand, and contrasted that with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things on the other hand, right? He's doing the same thing. He's growing, okay, over here, this is the way of the world. This is, this is the sinful nature. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what fruit looks like. At the end of the day, Jesus is after a transformed life. When looking at any leader, the key thing to ask is not how good does he sound and not how famous is he or those kind of things, but does this person's life show evidence of being transformed by the gospel and by the Spirit at work in him? more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And a second question you might want to ask is, can this person help me to lead that kind of a life as well? I'd like to take a moment and talk to you a bit about one of my favorite foods, the avocado. I know, I know some of you probably, who hates the avocado? Hands up, some of you I know can't stand them. They're slimy and greenish. Christy and I have had this discussion before. Many of you probably think they're vegetables, but they are not vegetables. They are fruits. So are tomatoes, so are peppers and cucumbers. Most of the things we call vegetables are, are technically speaking fruits. Almost all the avocados you see in the grocery store are one variety. 
They're called Hass avocados. Next time you're in there, even if you're not buying them, look at the little sticker on them or the, the tag on the shelf. It will usually say Hass avocados. They were developed by a man named Rudolf Hass about 100 years ago. Who was Hass? Was he a biologist or a botanist or a scientist? Or... No, Rudolf Hass was a mailman. And he got into growing avocados as a hobby because he thought he could sell some fruit on the side and make a little extra money. Now, like many people that pursue something at kind of a hobby, general interest level, he wasn't a professional, and he just kind of tried stuff to see if it would work. And so he'd buy seeds that he wasn't exactly sure where they came from. Some of them came from restaurant food scraps, which is the pits of the avocados that were thrown out. He'd sprout them and grow little trees from them. And then he would take different kinds of trees that he was growing, and he'd graft seedlings from one tree onto the other, just trying stuff to see what would work. Except he had this one tree that, for whatever reason, it wouldn't accept a graft. He'd put it on there, and, and uh, it, the graft would just die. It wouldn't take tried this two or three times and it just seemed like this tree was a total dud and he was thinking of just getting rid of it just uprooting it and throwing it away but a more experienced plant grafter urged him just keep it see what happens it seems like a strong and sturdy little tree even if it's stubborn and see what happens so as it turned out that tree did bear some fruit after a couple years and it looked different than the other avocados that everyone was growing at this time up until then, all the avocados that were grown tended to be smooth-skinned avocados. But as you might notice in the picture here, Hass avocados have this pebbly kind of textured skin, and no one had ever seen that before. And when he tried eating them, oh, these avocados are much tastier than any of the other avocado varieties that were being grown. So he decided to patent his tree. It was the first tree that ever received a patent. But patent laws being what they were back then, and Combined with the ease at which you can propagate avocados, they all have one great big seed in them. Pretty soon people were all growing them. Pretty soon that was the only type of avocados anyone was growing. And he never actually made a lot of money off of this avocado he discovered. But still, virtually all the avocados sold in grocery stores in North America are descended. They're not just that type. They are all directly descended from that one weird little tree that he grew. There was only ever one of it. No one really knows why it was so different. Maybe it was a genetic mutation. Maybe somebody had already cross-pollinated something. No one ever grew another one like it. So all the avocados in the world of this variety descended from that one funny little tree. It died a few years ago, unfortunately, an old tree. And so there's a plaque there uh, in memorial of this tree where it grew. And if you're an avocado fan, you can go. It's in La Habra Heights, California. You can go and visit it take your picture with it. There it is. That story, I told at some length, not just because I like avocados, but because it, it contains a really important truth for us today. The fruit defines the tree, at least if, if it's a fruit tree you're growing, right? If, if you're just growing a shade tree, what is maybe important is the shape of the tree and how nice and full it is and so forth. But if you're growing a fruit tree, it doesn't matter how ugly the little tree is or how scraggly or scrawny or funny looking it is. What matters is whether it bears good fruit. The quality of a fruit tree is determined by the fruit, not the other way around. What counts is the crop. Leaders in the Christian faith are the same. We should not evaluate a leader just based on how famous he is, how many books he's sold, 
how big his ministry is or how fast it grew or how nice he looks or what nice clothes he wears or any of these other kind of things. And neither should we evaluate a leader's message based just on how good it makes us feel or how much it helps us to succeed in life, at least as the world would define success. We should evaluate Christian leaders and their messages based on conformity to Christ, because that's what fruit is. Jesus said the way to life is hard, and anyone that tells you otherwise is leading you into a trap, no matter how good they sound or no matter how plausibly they may state these things. So we've had the narrow way and the, the wide way, the easy road and the hard road. We've had false and true teachers, good and bad fruit. Now we move into those who say they know Jesus or those who do the Father's will. Or perhaps even more pointedly, those who have activity versus those who have results. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. But I will say to them, I never knew you. These verses ought to be very, very sobering. If you do not find these verses a bit uncomfortable to read, you probably should. Of course, the sad irony is often the people that most need to hear these warnings are the ones that are incapable of doing so. Right? That's Jesus kind of said that about his parables. Those that really need to hear would not. Many people will stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, didn't we do all these good things? Didn't we even do spectacular things, right? Miracles and healings, casting out demons, preaching to large crowds. Jesus will say, I, I have no idea who you are. Depart from me. That's, that's chilling, right? That's uh, These people that think they're going to get a warm reception from the Lord in eternity, and he says to them, I'm sorry, but I have no, no idea who you are. You're not a follower of mine. It's chilling. Here's the thing about false teachers. There are some false teachers out there, I think, that eventually they get so deluded that they may start believing their own lies, thinking they're honestly doing the will of God. But at some point, most of them, I think, they did know. They made conscious choices to exploit the word of God for profit or lie or take advantage of people or any of those things. At some point, they made these choices to go down this road, and they did so knowingly. But there are people that follow some of these false teachers who have no idea that they are on the wrong road. Some of them think that they're doing just fine. They're busy with uh, church and religious activity and maybe have been so for many years. Some of the things they do are admirable or even moral, but the end is rejection. What's going on here? Jesus is warning. It's not enough just to profess faith. That is, just to do things in Jesus' name. You actually have to live it out. It's not enough just to be busy with religious activity to do things in his name. You actually have to produce results. You actually have to bear fruit in your own life and in whatever ministry you're doing. Hopefully that translates into fruit in the lives of others. And this is a bit sobering, I think, given our, our Protestant evangelical emphasis and assumptions about accepting Jesus in our hearts or making him our personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is telling the truth here, and he is, because Jesus is the truth. He personifies the truth. There will be many people who might have been baptized, who did Alpha, who went to Sunday school, who went on 
short-term missions trips, worked at camp, all kinds of things that might hear from Jesus someday. I have no idea who you are apart from me, right? They attended pro-life rallies. They voted conservative. They did whatever they thought they were doing in the name of the Lord. But that wasn't it. So what's, so what's the good news? Well, I think the good news is that we have a call and an invitation to not just talk the talk, but also to walk the walk. If we've been warned, the good news is if we heed the warning, we'll be on the right path with the Lord. Now, I had thought of titling this Cairnport Community Vineyard, vineyard being a, a kind of scriptural metaphor, but I thought the connotations about wine and drinking might not sit well with everyone. And we are talking about fruit trees, not fruit. So, Cairnport Community Orchard. What would it be if our if our church was an orchard? I don't know how much longer the, the palm tree is going to serve as our church logo. We may get to a new season where we decide that we need a different kind of dominant image and metaphor for what we're doing in our life together. But it's going to be there for a while now. So let's allow that little palm tree that gets put on our church bulletins and other sign and our Facebook page and all that. Let's allow that little tree that we see there to remind us of the need to be an orchard and the need to bear fruit. Because the primary purpose of ourselves and individuals and as a church congregation is to produce fruit, life transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, right? Not just to be busy with activity, not just to do stuff for the sake of doing stuff because we heard about some other church that was doing it or we think it would be but because we want to do things, everything we do that will produce life transformation. Not just to be busy, but to bear fruit. That's what we need to dedicate our time and our effort toward. I read an article recently about the, the Frithheimer greenhouse in Iceland where proprietors Knuter and Helena grow tomatoes. That's them there. Everyone in Iceland is beautiful, I think. Every picture I've seen. All their, they have pictures of all their staff. I'm like, is this a modeling agency or a greenhouse? Like, I think it's just Iceland. What a nice country. But in case you're a little rusty on geography, Iceland, Iceland is where is it? Iceland is here. This, this blue dotted line is the Arctic Circle. This is northern Canada. There's Iqaluit. Uh, this is Alaska. Fairbanks, Alaska is right there, just below the Arctic Circle. Anchorage, Whitehorse, and, and so forth. Iceland is way up there, just below the Arctic Circle. Iceland does have some things going for it in terms of, of growing tomatoes. They have geothermal water that can heat their greenhouses and provide moisture for the tomatoes. It's just there in the ground. It comes up through a pipe. It's free, and there seems to be an infinite supply of it. But Iceland also has some serious problems when it comes to growing tomatoes. The most obvious is, can guess it's dark in Iceland for half the year because it's the Arctic Circle like for five or six months of the year it's dark almost all the time which means that if you want to grow tomatoes all year round your greenhouse has to rely totally on artificial light but they solved that problem they talked to people in Finland who are experts at growing food under artificial lights so they got the system going Iceland has another problem when it comes to growing tomatoes they have no bees grow tomatoes, you know they need bees to pollinate the tomatoes. So they had to import all the bees. They imported them from Holland, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
they brought in bees, and now they, they have a beekeeping operation, and the bees just live in the greenhouse and pollinate the tomatoes all year round. Now, because they grow tomatoes all year round, they stagger the plantings to maximize the space. So they plant the brand new seedlings between the largest plants that will soon stop bearing fruit and be culled out, and then those little seedlings will have space to grow. Uh, this farm doesn't look to be a terribly large greenhouse in terms of space, but this one farm grows 18% of all the tomatoes that are consumed in Iceland. They harvest about one ton of tomatoes daily from this greenhouse. They grow about 370 tons of tomatoes a year. They have a restaurant on site because anybody that's grown tomatoes know you get funny looking ones sometimes, right? They have little, little scars on them or they're misshapen. They're still good to eat, but grocery stores don't want them because they look funny and they won't sell. So they solved that problem by starting a restaurant where they take all the funny looking tomatoes and make soup out of them. And then they don't waste any of their tomatoes. You get the impression that these people are passionate, maybe even a little bit obsessive about growing their tomatoes. Friends, if, if people in this less than ideal location way up by the Arctic Circle where it's dark for half the year and they have no bees, can create a very successful tomato growing operation. That's People are going to see this greenhouse from all over the world now for their sustainable tomato operation. If they can do that, what kind of, what kind of passion and what kind of excitement should we get for growing the fruit of the gospel in our lives and in the life, lives of one another, in the life of our congregation, right? What kind of excuses and obstacles should we be willing to, to cast aside? Right? We don't own our own building. People are transient around here. Or everyone's so busy. Or we're not very wealthy, right? What kind of creativity should this foster? If these people can do this just for the sake of growing some tomatoes, what could we do for the sake of growing gospel fruit in our midst? What kind of eagerness and excitement should it stir up? And what might our our families, as, as our own families, our own homes, and this family, how might that be transformed if we really latched onto this, to see the growing fruit of the gospel in our midst? Now, in some ways, this is a very basic dream, right? This is kind of Christianity 101 stuff. Like Jesus was saying this in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul was saying this in Galatians and other places. It's not like, oh, Growing the fruit of the gospel is something we just kind of discovered that Christians haven't known for the last 2,000 years. But in other ways, it's a big dream because it requires change in our lives. It requires, perhaps it will require sacrifices. It will require hard work, right? It will require us to be explorers rather than tourists. It will require us to be builders rather than just spectators and consumers. It's a dream that will require us to make some sacrifices. But it's a dream that I believe has great joy. I, people are finding more and more that what gives meaning in life, what makes for a life that somebody is pleased with at the end, is not just how much fun stuff they did or how much stuff they owned, but it's, it's what they did that was meaningful, and particularly what they did that was hard. That's the dream. What can we do that might be hard, but supremely and superbly worthwhile because Jesus is calling us to it. There's joy at the end of it, but I believe there's joy along the way too as we see this fruit taking hold and taking shape in our lives and in the lives of one another and the life of this 
church family. So let's pray. Let's take a little time here as we uh, move toward closing our service to pray that God would show us what he would have us do as part of this dream, the kind of fruit that he would have us growing in our own lives and how we might participate in that in the life of our community together. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your words in this passage. There, there are warnings there, Lord, about the wrong road to be on, the wide and easy road that will ultimately be the road to hell and destruction. There are warnings about the kind of leaders that we might follow, about following false leaders who care only about themselves. And there are warnings about being simply busy actually being about the work of your kingdom. And, and Lord, warnings can sometimes come across a bit as downers. And when we need to hear those warnings, Lord, we want to do so. But Lord, we recognize today that warnings are also opportunities. They're opportunities to check where we are and how we're doing, and opportunities to get on the right road if we need to. And so we pray that it wouldn't just be a hard word, but it would also be a is exciting and a word that prompts eagerness in us for the work that you've called us to do. May we be about the work of your kingdom in this place. May we have a passion and desire for growing the fruit of the gospel in our midst, for seeing our own lives transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. And may we have a passion for that in our midst as a church family and as a congregation as well. us the way would be hard, but may that encourage us to, to rise to the challenge, to be explorers and adventurers, not just tourists or consumers. May each one of us be attentive to your spirit as you guide us and as you show us what it is that you want us to do in those areas where we need where we do need to change, where the transformation needs to happen, where that fruit and Provide the strength, provide 